Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 164. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetsandFanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Fooleman? I'm good. I'm hanging in. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Um, you were commenting, so this is not a video podcast, but uh, so this is lost on many of the viewers, but you were commenting that my hair is getting truly unruly now, <laughs> which it very much is. We're back in like kind of the kind of 2020 phase of like i'm kind of scared to get a haircut oh yeah i i'm not sure if i've mentioned this on air before but uh at one point during the pandemic when there was just no prospect of ever seeing a barber i said okay i gotta do some of this myself i'm gonna sort of trim the back of my head i'm gonna you know shave to to steady the neckline all that sort of stuff i'm gonna be careful i'm gonna do it with mirrors i'm gonna be very practical about it and i went to my barber and he acted, I don't want to say it was as bad as if I'd presented him with a dead child, but it was pretty close. He was, <laughs> he was like, oh, wow, you did this? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. And like, I'm not going to try and do an Italian accent, but it was delivered in that, which uh, really made it feel like I'd have, you know, I'd done something very morally wrong by trying to cut my own hair. So I'm pretty self-conscious mm. about it now. But for what it's worth. Uh, I know you can't see this out there in audio land. Arvin looks actually pretty stylish with long hair. It, it's it's kind of <laughs> working for him, I think. So I'm try, trying to get that Timothy Chalamet look going. <laughs> Listen, man, this is how it starts. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, aside aside from from that, the Leafs have been playing because the NHL season is is kind of going on, despite you know gestures at world around us. Um, and we're just going to talk about we're going to talk about the Leafs instead of the gestures at world around usness of the world that we live in. So Leafs had three games this week against the Vegas Golden Knights, against the Arizona Coyotes, and yesterday against the St. Louis Blues. They went, um, I guess, two and one in that stretch. Uh, a shootout win against Vegas, a loss against the Coyotes in which they got goalie to hell, and then a wild one last night against St. Louis. We're not going to go into each game in immense detail, but we'll just talk a little bit about some of the trends that we've seen because, um, you know, we mentioned on last week's pod that this is going to be an important next couple of weeks for, for the Leafs in terms of playing road games against teams with good records and also, like, some strong teams um, even beyond the records as well uh, mixed in there too. So, yeah, we haven't had the chance to just talk about Leafs games plural in a fair bit of time, so let's do that. Yeah, so... I think there are things to feel good about. Um, number one is Austin Matthews, which mm-hmm. I don't think we need to belabor because at this point we've already said he is the savior of the franchise, but he's playing at a, a heart trophy level and it's incredible. And it's a big factor in everything the Leafs have achieved. Yes. Uh, so I, I wanted to get that uh, out of the way. I did also want to say, uh, yeah, sorry. Just, sorry, just one quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so according to Evolving Hockey, Austin Matthews is fourth in the league in goals above replacement, mm-hmm. and he has arguably gotten unlucky yeah. um, because <laughs> his on-ice save percentage is actually like, you know, quite low, and his on-ice shooting percentage isn't what it usually is either. Yeah, like the level he's performing at right now is just preposterous. Um, really, something to behold. I also like the fit with Michael Bunting on the left wing. Mm-hmm. I will freely acknowledge I have a bias in favor of Mr. Bunting because he's from Scarborough, and that is where all the best people are from, as far as I'm concerned. No bias there. But, you know, in all seriousness, uh, 
I think he's fit in really well, and by any measure, he's outperformed his contract. Yes, so that's that's been fun. Definitely true. Um, actually, sorry, one thing I should mention with goals above replacement, mm-hmm. um, the fact that Matthews has gotten slightly unlucky in terms of goaltending actually shouldn't matter very much because I'm pretty sure goals above replacement for the defensive component uses expected goals against and okay. not goals against. But the fact that he has arguably gotten a little bit unlucky on offense definitely would matter. And in fact, if you look at expected GAR, um, which essentially uses expected goals for for offense, Matthews leads the league, um, or sorry, is second, uh, leads leads forwards, is second behind Kale McCarr. Yeah, and Kale McCarr, as we discussed on our last episode, is a mutant. So, yeah, uh, anyway, that's... Kind of the big mainline takeaway. If you want to feel good about the Leafs, you generally have to look at how Austin Matthews is playing. And we just thought we should note that. Um, I think last night we saw what happens when Jack Campbell isn't a superstar goalie. Yes. Um, there's kind of been, there's been so much talk about, uh, you know, the Leafs are improved defensively. The Leafs are improved defensively. And... Again, they're not bad defensively, but they are a team that is very dependent on their goaltender. And also, when we say are better defensively, I think the more accurate way to describe the Leafs is better at having to avoid defending. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and I think that this will actually come up if we discuss Mitch Martin later in the podcast, but mm-hmm. just having the puck is kind of the best defensive play you can make because... Even if you're Martin Marincin, when you have the puck, it is less likely to go in against you than it is to go in for you. Um, That's, in its way, the best defensive play. And so, I think the Leafs are a very, very strong puck possession team, and that has stood in, in a way, as good defense. Even though we saw some nights this week, (laughs) and... Uh, I'm also including the game against the Avalanche that we discussed last episode. We saw some nights where the Leafs' defense was not much in evidence. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but Jack Campbell has generally bailed them out. He's been exceptional all year, to be clear. Not worried about him having an off night. Every goal he does, he's had remarkably few of them. But last night, he didn't have his best stuff, and it turned into a gong show pretty quickly. Even though I thought the Leafs outplayed the Blues notwithstanding some brain farts. Right. I, I, I think... So, again, I'll, I'll, I'll chat about the Blues game in a bit, but mm-hmm. just to set the table here, against Vegas, I think the Leafs played, like, a relatively strong first half of the game and then completely turtled in the third. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, Vegas can do that to teams. But, you know, the, the Leafs kind of escaped with that game, and Campbell was a big reason as to why, mm-hmm. and, and so was William Nylander, who had a goal, and also the shootout winner. The Coyotes, they're not an NHL team. The, no. the Leafs did what they were supposed to do in that game. I don't care really that they got goalied. I'm going to get stressed out enough over the team possibly getting goalied in May. I'm not going to stress out about it in January. Yeah. Um, against St. Louis, I think offensively, the team was pretty dynamite. And I think we talk a lot, we meaning you and I specifically, we talk a lot and like point out some of the quirks of Sheldon Keefe's offensive system and how it can lead to these suboptimal um, kind of micro situations of you know, we turn the puck over, and now there, there's, you know, William Nylander playing defense and, and Justin Hall in the net front, right? And that, that can be weird and lead to these bad outcomes. But it's worth pointing out and really emphasizing, teams sometimes just have a really fucking hard time dealing with the movement that the Leafs create in the offensive zone. Mm-hmm. They really do. And the Leafs were just getting so many good chances. They, the, just the, 
having so many smart offensive players who could find soft spots and who whose teammates know they're going for those areas um, means that the Leafs seemingly always have nice outlets in decent positions in the zone. They're unpredictable. They take advantage of chaos, right? When you're an offensive team, you always want to create chaos because, you know, it's, that's more easily exploited by the offensive team, and especially when you have smart and skilled offensive players like the Leafs generally do. If you so, were a fan yeah. of one of these other teams... I think you would spend a lot of time, you know, shouting at your screen saying things like, oh my God, you can't leave John Tavares that open. Or why isn't there anybody on Austin Matthews? You, you know, you would be talking about these stars the way we talk about, say, um, the top line on the Avalanche in a, in a game like Saturday night. And it can be easy to get used to the high level of offense that the Leafs have, but they're very, very hard to contain. And despite uh, a couple of memorable playoff failures where the team seemed to go cold, at least some of them did at the wrong time, this is a very, very dangerous lineup. And you saw that a lot all week. Even in the game against the Coyotes, I know that it's not fun to say, but look, if you haven't seen great teams get goalied, you haven't been watching hockey for more than two weeks. Like, it's just the kind of thing that can happen. They were dangerous all night, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, we really saw that last night. Just an exceptional offense. Even though the winning goal was a bit of a, a weird Ilya Mikheyev mind fluke because he gets those now. <laughs> mm. But, uh, yeah. yeah. And I think the Leafs did a really strong job in terms of their, their offensive puck retrieval, mm -hmm. I thought, in particular. I, I harp on this a lot, but, you know, offensive zone puck recoveries and offensive zone turnovers create such good opportunities. And the Leafs did that a lot. They really choked off the St. Louis breakout um, from getting to the middle of the ice, I thought, in particular. They forced them to go up the boards, and um, a lot of the times that led to these, these scramble battles that the Leafs were able to win, and part of that is also like on a game-to-game -game basis, there's probably a little bit of luck in, involved in, and randomness of just who wins those battles, because it's just a, a couple people hacking at a piece of vulcanized rubber <laughs> yeah. um, along a board. But, you know, that, that, that ended up being really strong. And we also, I know our shots tilted to the left side mm. um, of the ice a little bit. I don't think that's anything particularly systemic. You know, that, that's not really a pattern that exists when you look at the ice more broadly. Um, I, I'm curious as to what caused that yesterday. But long, long, the long and short of it is that the Leafs' movement and doggedness in puck uh, retrieval really helped them generate a lot of offense against, uh, against the Blues. In their own zone, more of a mixed bag, to say the least. Very much so. I think that it's been established beyond any doubt. The big concern with this team is that Jake Muzzin plus Guy is no longer a good enough pairing for what we needed to do. And for a while, it was Jake Muzzin and Justin Hall, and they worked really well together. Hall has fallen off a little bit, but... We were talking about this before we went on, and we said, you know, if this were another team to which we had no particular emotional attachment, we would look at Jake Muzzin and we would say, 31-year-old physical defender, probably father time is catching up with him. And that's not a pleasant thing to contemplate, but it's a very possible scenario. And we're seeing Jake Muzzin a little bit slow on play after play after play, and he's making mistakes as a consequence that he didn't make before. 
least not yeah. nearly and as it's often. Not, yeah. It's not as if he is bad now. Like if yeah. you look at mm-hmm. his his RAPM by um, evolving hockey, it says he's just about average as a play driver this year. Um, I think Hockey Viz says the same thing. You look at his on ice stats, and I believe his um, his expected goals rate is notably above fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Right, they're they're more than treading water in that regard. Same if you look by by Corsi or something like that. Um, they have gotten his goals for rate is very very low. So at least are not scoring well with Muzzin on the ice. Um, and that makes me think maybe to some extent we're judging him harshly for things that are not entirely within his control. Mm-hmm. Right? They, um, so just to put the actual numbers behind this, his expected goals rate is 53%. His core C4 rate is uh, 51.5%. His goals for rate is 48% or 47.5% basically. Right. And um, so are we just digging him for being on for a not particularly good on ice save percentage? It's very possible. At times, I have to say it has felt earned. And that's the deceptive thing about PDO is you're always going to think that it's earned if you're watching very closely. Yes. But he's made giveaways that were just very bad, that were just very striking. And I'm trying not to eye test it too much, but the contrast is so strong with what he was before, which was the most reliable defenseman on the team. Yeah. I think the important thing to note here is, like, even, let's say Jake Muzzin is the same, or is, is exactly what those play-driving stats um, say, independent of goal. So he's not a 47% goals for guy. He's, like, he should be, like, a 52, 53% goals guy, mm-hmm. because that's what his expected goals is. That, you know, that's quite good. But it's still worse than he was last year when he was a 56% expected goals guy and a 54% Corsi guy yeah. and a 60% goals guy for what, it, for what it's worth, right? So regardless of whether he has earned that poor on-ice save percentage or not, there's very clear indicators that his effectiveness or at least the effectiveness of the team when he's on the ice has dropped this year without really huge changes to usage, as far as I can tell. Yeah. He has mostly the same line mates. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still playing a lot with our kind of star offensive players, right? He, he spends a decent amount of time with, uh, with Tavares, spends a, a roughly, you know, as expected amount of time with players like Matthews and, and Nylander. His usage, I don't think, is extremely defensive, yeah, I mean, he, it's it's more defensive maybe than some of the other players, but... Right, but, yeah. but in comparison to, to previous years, yeah. has it gotten much more defensive? No. I don't know. And, and you know, it, it like... Yeah, I, I actually, I'm just looking this up on Hockey this now, and it, like, if I showed you last year's and this year's defensive usage in terms of zone starts, it, you wouldn't be able to tell which is which. Mm-hmm. So, that, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's the answer that's staring you in the face is that the player... I said he was 31, he's 32. And he's going to turn 33 in February. Um, sometimes it is just age. When this deal was signed, we said, look, this probably doesn't look great in year four. Very possibly not in year three. You know, if we're lucky, we'll get the first two years and they'll be good. And, you know, right now we're halfway through the second year and we're saying, okay, there are some warning lights on the dash. And again, it's not that he's not playable by any means or that we're not going to use him. He's going to be one of the top four most played defensemen in the playoffs, if he's healthy. 
but when you look at this team, you see a lot of, I would say, fairly successful forward bits, Nick Betts, Nick Ritchie notwithstanding, and then you see a defense where the second pairing has fallen off to the point where now it's a real concern and that's something you'd really want to upgrade. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, like you know, this has just been getting... I think this has gotten to the point where I'm no longer in a lot of doubt. Like, I'm no longer saying, oh, maybe he'll he'll turn it around. I just hope that the decline is slow. But, yeah, this maybe is just dead. So. Yeah, I, and I'm looking at his competition as well. Mm-hmm. This year, it's like roughly league average-ish competition. Slightly harder than that, maybe. Right. And last year, if anything, he had tougher competition. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, and, and we remarked on it this year that... Um, the Leafs were not matching Muzzin and Hall as hard to, to other teams' top players. And, it, you know, it would be kind of the obvious move to make because you're seeing them in decline. Um, you know, I, sometimes I think the coach really is just seeing what we are and that he can't rely on that pairing the way that he once did. Right. And, like, what it boils down to is Muzzin right now might just be basically an average NHL defenseman, mm-hmm. right? That's not bad. That's like, that's still that's well within his contract, in terms of like what we're paying for, and with his usage, that's that's also like reasonable. He he's playing a top four role. If he's an average defenseman, you think that's like a third fourth defenseman. But what we needed him to be was like a borderline top pair defenseman. We needed him to be like a what above average um, defenseman because our defense core is built around these three guys who are not necessarily elite defensive, but are all, you know, significantly above average in different ways. Mm-hmm. And now if one guy is regressing to average, well, that, that actually hurts us a fair bit. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, if the Leafs defense is a three-legged stool, this is one leg getting a bit shorter. Yeah. And I guess I should say it hurts us a fair bit. I mean, people would say, well, how, how has it hurt us? Our record's amazing. And that's true. Hurts us a fair bit in the sense of we're going to have to beat really good teams in a playoff series and every marginal gap matters yeah right um i was just on twitter this morning and i saw this absurd pass that nikita kucherov made to to spring a lightning teammate for um, a breakaway last night and it's like well yeah that's what we're going up against nikita kucherov and Braden point yeah like it's not going to be enough unfortunately to be like yeah i think this team could take the i don't know the new york rangers who are basically panarin and goaltending in a trench coat you know i think this team could take the National Predators or the St. Louis Blues if it came down to it. Unfortunately, in the Atlantic Division, the Leafs have a really good chance of drawing either the Tampa Bay Lightning or the Florida Panthers round one. And those are probably two of the best three teams in the NHL right now. Yeah, I mean, like them, Carolina, are, are, are the, the ones that stand out to me yeah. right now. Uh, and, and then and the Avs and then Vegas is going to get Eichel, in which case they could be pretty terrifying. But yeah, still, like... You're staring down an insane gauntlet. And so going into the trade deadline, I think you have to be thinking, get someone to play with Muzzin. Because again, Muzzin is going to stick around. It's just Mm -hmm. Muzzin plus Hall has faded away as Justin Hall has declined and Muzzin has declined. And then Timothy Liljegren, I don't think is ready for that second pairing role. Yeah, it probably does say something that Keith, prefers to put Liljegren there rather than putting Liljegren with Sandine and then moving Dermot up. Mm. It just seems like Keefe is not incredibly enamored with Dermot in the top four. The Travis Dermot thing, I think, is about done in Toronto. 
In the sense of, like, I don't anticipate a major change to his status in the organization or his role. You know, anything can happen, but he's 25. He's been here a long time. This is what they think of him. You know, I think, to be honest from his quotes, Travis Dermott would not have been unhappy to have been claimed in the Seattle expansion draft. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's still got another year on this contract. But, yeah, it's uh, it's starting to look like maybe this is just what he is. So, yeah, and with Lilligren, it's Lilligren definitely like I'm I'm relatively confident he's going to be an NHLer. His his stats this year are are solid. He's passed the eye test. Mm-hmm. I I think you know barring injury, Lilligren's going to have a long and productive career as a as a third pairing guy minimum. Mm-hmm. Right, he's going to be an NHLer. Is he going to be more than that? It's hard to say. I, I mean. I do notice his lack of speed mm-hmm. sometimes, his lack of straight line speed. We've seen him get blown by a couple times this year. This happened last night, I think in the first period. I forget who it was that went by him. It might have been O'Reilly. Um, O'Reilly's not exactly a burner himself, by the way. Mm. Great opportunist, though. Like, he, see, he yeah. sees when he has to take the first step before anyone else does. So Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but it might not have been O'Reilly anyways. Like, if it's, if it's Jordan Cairo, who's a very good <laughs> skater, that's a, that's a different question. Um, but yeah, you, you with Muzzin there, you, you would sometimes like someone with a bit more recovery speed. Mm-hmm. Um, Hall, granted, Hall isn't that either, right? But you know, I, I think if we're saying, oh, you know, we need to shore up the second pair, um, can we do that internally? Well, the guy you look at is is Lilligren. and I again like the standard is not can they do a job there, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, Lilligren and Muzzin can play together and they'll probably have, like, you know, they'll probably be above water in, in Corsi and expected goals. And, you know, assuming they get reasonable luck and don't do something systemic that results in amazing chances against, they're probably above uh, 50% in goals four as well. Mm-hmm. But, again, are you, are you comfortable with them against Braden Point? Are you comfortable with them against David Pasternak? Are you comfortable with them against um, Alexander Barkov? Right? That's a different question entirely. Absolutely. And, you know, we've we've talked about how the Leafs are at that level where there is no allowance now. There is no forgiveness for just doing pretty well. Like, a season like the Detroit Red Wings are having, where they're rising out of the cellar, they're outperforming expectations, they can focus on the good and kind of ignore the bad. That's where we were five years ago. And now there is no forgiveness. There is no, maybe it'll get better soon. Matthews is at his peak right now. It's just, are you good enough to beat a team that looks like the Tampa Bay Lightning or the Florida Panthers? And if you're not, then that's kind of an indictment. And so when you have a kind of a glaring flaw, and by I don't mean to be pessimistic here because I like the forwards and Jack Campbell has been terrific. I'm just saying you now have to be thinking, any weakness we have is going to get exploited by very, very good players. Yeah, we are, we are very much picking nits here. And yeah. I guess to, to kind of turn this into a bit more of an optimistic, um, optimistic point of view, coming into the year, we thought the forwards would be the ones that needed more help. And the reason we aren't talking about them is because we've gotten some surprise outperformances, mm-hmm. right? Michael Bunting has, has been very helpful, as, as you said off the top. Andre Kasha, when healthy, has played phenomenally well mm-hmm. right Wayne Simmons has had a bit of a renaissance William Niedander 
Um, I said, I think a couple podcasts ago that, you know, he, I, the, the Anders hot start probably was just going to go, he, at some point he's just going to revert to, to himself, but he, his overall play and his point production has stayed above point per game um, most of the year. And his, his play has been deserving of that, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Right. We, we've gotten a lot of strong performances from the forwards to the extent that, you know, when healthy, this forward depth is sufficient, mm-hmm. right? We, we have the four stars who are playing like stars. Kasha is a great fifth forward. Bunting is uh, a good complementary player who is meshed well with, with Matthews and with Marner when he's played. Kerfoot has been productive and more than a little bit fortunate in terms of goals for. <laughs> yeah, that um, also helps. But we'll, ta- but we'll take it. And in the bottom six, we have, you know, 14 players who can play in the bottom six if we really mm-hmm. want to. And, you know, it's, it's worth noticing you know, I do greatly envy the Florida Panthers and just how good they are. But, like, their third line is not that terrifying. You know, by comparison... They do have Reinhardt there on it sometimes, though. They, yeah, they, they sometimes I'm, I'm up. crediting him as first line right wing right now. If they move yeah. him down, that gets scary. But it's the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, look at Nylander. Yeah. <laughs> same sort of thing. I, I don't mean that I take them lightly. They're fucking terrifying. I'm just saying the Leafs at forward can comfortably put themselves on a level with, I would say, any team in the league. Especially since yeah. Tampa Bay has had to acknowledge that there is a salary cap, finally. <laughs> and, and other teams are probably, just as we're looking at, at the Panthers being like, oh man, that's, that's tough. I, the Panthers are probably not going to be thrilled if they have a great regular season, finish second or third in the division, and have to play us. Mm-hmm. Right, they're like, oh, fuck, like that, that, that's our reward? We get Austin Matthews and John Tavares and Mitch Marner? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's, you know, that old saying about Bears and or Bruins. They're just as afraid of you as you are of them. But mm-hmm. uh, that just boils us back down to this very particular thing on the defense. And, and so I'm sure Kyle Dubas is working the phones or thinking, you know, maybe are you looking into John Klingberg, for example, who is rumored to want out in Dallas. Rumored is underselling it. He has said he's not very happy there, and everyone is saying, yeah, he's probably getting traded. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if the the Leafs intend to bid on him because he's going to be in demand, and also because one of his great strengths is as a power play defenseman, which the Leafs don't need. But that's my big takeaway looking at this team, is that the goaltending insofar as you can count on it, and goaltending is always a bit of a crapshoot, has been everything you could have hoped for. And I think Morazic, once he settles in, may still give us some decent backup work. And then you have, mm-hmm. you know, good enough forwards. It's just, I, I don't know about Jake Muzzin and how we're going to support him. Yeah. Um, any other big takeaways from the three games this week? Well, I guess the, the Leafs have been without Mitch Marner for a mm-hmm. fair bit of time. And there's often the saying that, like, in sports, the, the most popular player on the team is, is the guy who isn't playing because you romanticize him. And if things aren't going well, it's like, oh, if only we had that guy, he would fix it. Yeah. Um, that hasn't been the case with Marner in the sense that, like, I feel because the team has been doing generally quite well without him and because Matthews personally has been on a roll even without Mitch Marner, people are like, it, it raises a question of, you know, what's Marner's actual value to this team? And those are two, there's many ways to answer that because as yesterday would hopefully have reminded people, 
this team is so much better when, when Mitch Marner plays. He's a very, very good player. Absolutely. And I do, uh, before we embark on this segment, I want to give a shout out because it was suggested to us uh, by David, that's D-W-H-D-A-I, D-A-I on Twitter. Uh, he's a listener, friend of the pod, and he was talking about um, Mitch Marner's overall value. And he was saying he has a hard time getting a peg on how good a player Mitch Marner really is. He's not saying he thinks he's a bad player by any means, and neither are we. But it can be difficult to get a grasp, sorry, get a grasp on just how good he really is and just how much this team is being powered by his performance. And that's a question that we've kind of looked in on throughout his career, and especially since he signed that enormous contract. And I have to say, I have not been encouraged by everything that I've seen lately in terms of looking into that. Um, well, uh, the reality is he's not worth his contract. We know that. Yeah, and there's no argument that he is that I can see. I don't think that, even by the purest look-at-all-the-points thing, $11 million against the cap is just a hell of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, there are players who do that for less. Most of them do. And that's... That's just how it is. Now, trying to assess how good he really is. In his favor, he has hands that are borderline dumb. Terrific vision. Uh, He's a takeaway artist. He plays well um, on the power play at 5v5 and on the penalty kill. You can kind of use him for anything, and he's good at it and dangerous at it. Uh, Several centers playing with him have had absolutely phenomenal scoring years. Obviously, Austin Matthews, John Tavares, even Tyler Bozak. So all of those things count in his favor, and they all do matter. But I'm a bit concerned at this point that we have paid Mitch Marner for things other people did because he was contributing to them, and he was, but perhaps not to the extent that we hoped. Something that's kind of struck me when I looked into this and that I did not realize is that since the start of 2019, Mitch Marner and John Tavares are getting outscored pretty badly 5v5 Mm -hmm. together. I looked at it yesterday, so this is not including last night. But in 574 minutes together, they have 40% of the goals. That's not remotely good enough for players of that caliber. Now, starting it in 2019 cuts out the 18-19 season, their first together, when they destroyed everything before them. Still, though, that's not nothing. That's been going on for a while, and for a player of Mitch Marner's caliber, playing with a center of John Tavares' caliber, you hope for more. Now, their PDO is not great, it has to be said. And that's important, but part of the idea of Mitch Marner is that he's such a good playmaker that the people playing with him are going to finish on more of their shots than they otherwise would because he's setting them up for great chances. So when we say that, and then we look at a large sample, we can't really turn around and say, yeah, but it's just low shooting percentage. Some of that is what he is for, and that does count for something. I don't mean that he's a bad player or that he should be sent to Siberia or anything, but 
it is a little worrisome that those numbers aren't better. And it does really emphasize that we probably paid him for who we got to play with as much as anything. To some extent, yes. That said, it, it, that combination of him and Matthews, you can argue to what degree they... I mean, who, who gets more responsibility for it? It's Matthews. Um, and who is, like, relatively speaking, more of the passenger. But Marner is not a passenger in a, in a tip. He, he is definitely contributing a lot to that group. And at this point, the contract is the contract. We are still a far better team with Mitch Marner on it. Mm-hmm. Right? And our, our lines, every line that Mitch Marner gets is, getting, is going to get better. So in terms of his like, overall value to us, it's enormous. I don't think we can... I think if we are missing him for any series, any series that we're likely going to play, it would take us from like, possible favorites to kind of notable underdogs. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's very important. Is he worth the contract? No. But we need to, I think at some point we have to just accept, okay, yeah, he's, he's not worth a contract. It sucks. But that doesn't, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. There's also the perhaps less encouraging angle on this. Good but not worth his contract is a difficult situation to be in because it also means it's going to be harder to do anything with it if you even decide to. Like, if the Leafs flame out in the playoffs again, and Mitch Marner, on a related note, probably doesn't have the most productive series, that would be the circumstance that would lead you to think, okay, maybe the Leafs are finally ready to deal him. That's also the circumstance in which other teams are less interested in acquiring him. I'm not saying that he would have no trade value or anything like that, but people would look at him and say, hey, this is an $11 million player who has not gotten it done in the postseason again and again and again. And you can debate how fair that is because he had a good series against Boston. But I think we're kind of stuck with this one. You know? Like, there's a scenario where I can see a trade where the, the team does well, but not perfectly this, this postseason. And then there's a bit of a retool. And that might be the best situation for his value. But I think more likely... We have a really good player who's so far from being worth his very bulky contract in adverse market conditions that we're just going to have him for a while to come. And and so there, I guess there are worse things in the world than that. But yeah, I think uh, there are real questions about how much he's driving things compared to how much he is a good and exceptional complimentary player. Um. I, th- I think that's fair. Yeah. I, I do think this this comes off as too negative about It, it probably I mean, does, he had, yeah. He had a wonderful game last night. He did. You know, th- that play that he made, the takeaway leading to the goal, that was crazy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and he's a magician at that. He's a complete pickpocket with the puck. It's just, it's incredible to behold. And I, I don't ever want to lose sight of just what an incredible player it is. Because, you know, when we talk about guys like, I don't know, Kirill Kaprizov, or something like that on this podcast. We swoon over how great they are. Well, Marner has those hands. He has that talent level. It's just uh, tough to keep perspective. I did also want to talk about the power play, which is a bit worrisome to me in the context of Marner. 
Marner has been the part of very, very good power play units in the Jim Hiller era. Enough that I think we can say, obviously, he has skills. And he can run a power play. But the Leafs are Austin Matthews' team. And I think we've seen again and again, Austin Matthews can be the focal point of a really, really good power play that doesn't have Mitch Marner on it. There's some question as to whether we're really getting as much as we seem to think we are by playing him on PP1 all the time. Yeah, I saw, I saw Anthony Petrielli talk about this at, at MOHS earlier this week. Um, part of the reality is that when you pay a guy $11 million, you can't not play him PP1. Yeah. Unless you kind of very intentionally move to a balanced PP framework where you break up, you, do, you, give, you, you move one of the other core four in addition to Barner to the second unit as well. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, this is a weird thing to, to say, given that Marner had a brilliant setup for a power play goal last night. Um, and I think we have found a better system to deal with his peculiarities, and that system is do not be so rigid. Mm-hmm. If Marner is always in the same spot, his weaknesses are more easily game-planned around. Um, and I think one thing the Leafs have done very well this year is change up their looks from power play to power play, from game to game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are times where last night where Marner was operating on the half wall, we've, as we've often seen him do. Uh, and, and then later in the game, he was operating effectively behind the net, and that, that'll shift even within the same power play. Right? I think that's a, that's a good way around it. But, yeah, there was an argument in the, in the hitter era that, like, Marner alone was just a handful of good shooters makes him makes an elite power play. Mm-hmm. And I think it's now become more clear. And, and to be clear, I was someone who thought that as well, because Marner so clearly seemed to be the straw that stirred the drink on um, that, that second unit that featured him and Kadri and, and Van Riemsdyk prim- primarily. Um, but now it seems fairly clear that like Marner you have to be a little bit careful about how you use him on the power play, and it's not a him alone uh, type of deal where you know him alone makes a great power player. Him alone with like kind of just average power play players makes a great power play. The way we see for for other um, you know elite offensive players. I think we've seen again and again with the Leafs uh, in recent years, and I'm maybe projecting, but there's almost been a sense at times of okay, they're so talented. That basically ought to do it. You know, with the power play last year when it wasn't working and the Leafs kind of kept throwing it out, uh, there was just a sense of, okay, it's too good to be this bad. Uh, the power line against Columbus is like, well, we're just going to have the best line that can be conceived of in this series and we're going to throw it out. And that should tell. You know, the Leafs feel like a big bet on talent will out in the end. And I think with Mitch Marner as much as anything... Using him as well as possible is much more important than kind of a do-everything player. With Austin Matthews, I mean, you still want to use him intelligently. Don't get me wrong. But a whole lot of your game plan can be, we're going to have Austin Matthews with the puck as often as we can, and a lot of other things will work out. I don't think that should be your approach with Mitch Marner. He has to be used with a certain degree of care, I think. And on the power play especially. Mm-hmm. Um... So yeah, I, 
I do always worry we're at risk of toppling over into negativity, and I know I've probably done that in the segment, uh, in the context of Marner's cap hit. But, yeah, I, I, I've probably said it enough to make it obvious. I think we paid one of the very, very best complimentary players I've ever seen, as if he is a prime mover. And I don't think he quite is. At least not to the extent that we were hoping. So, uh, yeah, uh, David, I hope you don't regret asking and getting that answer, but, uh, there it is. Yeah, it's, again, it, we, we, it's very important to emphasize how, how, how good he is in a general sense. And, you know, th- there are people who, who talk about the cap negatively for exactly this reason that it forces us to look at a brilliant player like Marner who every team should be happy to have a player like Mitch Marner on their team but it forces us to like evaluate them in this through this lens of are they worth what they are getting paid and it's like inherently the the view you take as a fan is now tilted very much towards management and away from labor Mm -hmm. in, in a very like real sense absolutely um so yeah it's that's that's certainly a downside of the cap, and there there, are, I know it's a very popular opinion in in Leafsland to be like, oh, there just shouldn't be a cap. There should be a luxury tax, mm-hmm. right? The way the NBA has it, because the Leafs would certainly benefit from that situation. Um, th- it's not happening, so there's maybe not too much yeah sense in, in wasting time and energy discussing it. But um, you know, I think another reason people would really like the, the cap is, or, or sorry, um, a luxury tax and a soft cap is that it would prevent us from having to, to stare the reality of, like, Mitch Marner's probably not wor- quite worth his contract uh, in the face. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I hope we've tried to strike that balance there. Either way, I think we're kind of stuck with him. And to be honest, being stuck with a player of Mitch Marner's caliber is far from the worst thing that has happened to this franchise. Mm-hmm. So let's hope that he can keep elevating and maybe even have a playoff showing where he makes me feel a little silly for having worried about it this much. Yes. Um, And then we wanted to talk about something else, or maybe this was just me. I might have gotten a bit enthusiastic about this final segment that we're going to do. John Chayka, formerly of the Arizona Coyotes, published an op-ed in Sportico, the business of sports, the magazine. And it was a strange article to me. It read as if it were a cover letter. It's, it, to me, I think it's a pretty obvious please hire me letter. It may be in the context of sports, because it is in Sportico, the magazine of the business of sports. But it may... <laughs> is, is, is that their own tagline, or are you just like, that, are they paying you? <laughs> no, that's what they say. Okay. For some reason, every well, time I see it, it makes me laugh because the name has sport in it. And then they're like, yeah. but what if people don't know we're about sports? So... Um, <laughs> Anyway, he may also be trying to uh, attract capital investment or something else. But he wrote this long op-ed in which he reflected on his time as the general manager of the Arizona Coyotes. And he did something that I think a lot of us have done. He sort of overrated some of his accomplishments while speaking in weird corporate-friendly buzzwords. And, you know, I don't necessarily hold this against him, but there is an outer limit on this sort of thing, where you really start to push the the bounds of the truth 
in sort of generous directions. And by the end of this one, I was like, wait a minute. What are you talking about, John? This is pretty dubious. Uh, and I think that it's because Cheka wants to get hired back into the league. Now, you may remember uh, Cheka took over as the youngest general manager in NHL history in May 2016. He was 26. Um, with due respect to my co-host, I think 26 is too young to run a, <laughs> a full hockey organization. Hey, man, I'm 27. All right. Yeah, Arvin's old enough now. But uh... <laughs> No, it's... I mean... I would never say that like age is completely should rule someone out, mm-hmm. but there and, and Cheka does have, as he will mention in this article and as we'll go through, have like a track record of, of business success. Um, but it, I think there's there's definitely a tendency as fanalists to be like to to think that hockey Twitter could run an NHL team, mm. and. In some cases, I'm sure they could do better than, than some people. Mm-hmm. But also, like, management sucks and is very hard to do. Yeah. So I think people do underrate the difficulty of it. Not saying that applies here with, with Cheka and that that's why he got in over his head. But, like, just proper management of people or of an organization in general is quite difficult. Absolutely. It's a challenging task. There are a lot more things in being a GM then I think are popularly recognized. And some of them he does touch on. But the thing about Cheka is that he left the Coyotes in July 2020, apparently to get a job with a sports conglomerate. And the Coyotes were not happy about this. And neither was the league. He was actually issued a a one-year ban, I believe, for uh, violating the terms of his contract. I don't think the job with the sports conglomerate materialized because it's not referenced here and because this seems like a please hire me thing. So this reads to me like Cheka is saying, I want to get back in the sports executive game. I have to publish this um, staggering LinkedIn fever dream of a letter in Sportico, the business of sports magazine. And I just want to address some of the things that he said in this article because it kind of stood out to me. So shall we embark together on this journey? Yes. Uh, yes. Let's go ahead. And, and I guess wait. Have we have we mentioned the suspension that Cheka had? Yes. We. Yeah. I was just saying. Yeah. He was uh, suspended. Yeah. From, yeah. Uh, he was also okay, involved good. in. Yeah. It was because of uh, draft picks. Was another thing. Mm. Um, to the detriment of the Coyotes organization, he did some outside of the rules draft interview stuff uh, and workout things like the the draft process is very carefully regulated by the league like you could only meet with players in this context and at the combine and no private workouts that sort of thing and it's one of those rules that they actually do care if you break and so Cheka broke it um there was much upset he he had a suspension for a time period the coyotes lost a, lost a draft pick which they could have really used um was pretty striking so First two paragraphs, uh, Cheka talks about fear and imposter syndrome. We can all sympathize. It's tough. He's risen. There is already a little bit of the humble bragging that is going to illuminate this piece. He says, this phenomenon typically afflicts high achievers who attribute their own success. Sorry, who attribute their success not to their own abilities, but to a fluke or grand good luck. Imposters feel like a fraud destined to fail, despite a mountain of evidence to the contrary. I like how it's like, even for this 
setup of humility. Like, we already have to be clear. It's like, and it's obviously imposter syndrome because I'm fucking awesome. So, okay. Driving to the arena in my first days as a GM, I remember fixating on my resume, working to talk myself into a degree of self-confidence. Been there, buddy. I had majored in business at a top school, graduating at the top of my class. Okay. I had been in hockey all of my life in one form or another, beginning with countless hours in a backyard rink in Canada to founding the gold standard of hockey analytics, Statleaf Inc. Okay. I don't know about gold standard of hockey analytics. That was the first thing that I took issue with. I'm like, that's a very, I don't know. It's, it's hard. I mean, we, we are in no position to judge it because we don't know what Statleaf does. Right. Like, it's all private. Like, we, we, know, we, know, we know they sell like some sort of data and analysis and I guess probably visualization and, and dashboarding stuff to teams of varying levels. Presumably they do a good job of it because they seem to have a lot of clients. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, in that sense, it's like, we don't know enough to dispute that or, or to, you know, verify it. So it, him, him saying it is kind of obvious, uh, obviously him messaging it. Cause he, he, he it's, it's not like, it's clearly not unbiased. I mean, you got to talk yourself up in a cover letter, which again is what I think this is. But yeah. gold standard of hockey analytics feels a bit, I don't know. Maybe this is me and maybe that this is like Canadian instinct where it starts to sound megalomaniacal or something like that. It's like mm -hmm. gold standard for, you know, maybe. Like, <laughs> it's kind of a black box to me. Anything that could be happening in there is of any standard possible. If I was editing this cover letter, you definitely suggest like one of the leading industry you know? leader. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they're in the industry. I've heard of them. They're a leader. <laughs> so yeah. So we go through that. I was also overseeing a restaurant portfolio with a larger staff and more expensive operations than my eventual position with the coyotes. Very good. He sits on the board of Wendy's Canada, apparently. Awesome. Anyway. So he overcomes his self doubt in the next couple paragraphs and <laughs> we, we, I can't believe none of us thought to, to, like, tweet this um, letter with a, sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> oh, man, that was right there. Oh, geez, that's been a hot lost opportunity. Part. Okay. Yeah. Those fears you feel, despite what your brain says about your qualifications, are a natural element of achieving outsized successes. It is so hard when you just keep succeeding in your life. I hate it when I keep succeeding, and I just doubt myself in spite of that. In spite of my continued awesomeness, I just am racked with with self-doubt every day of my life is like winning the lottery and it haunts me i can't mm. sleep because i think of how great i am okay during my tenure and in partnership with another young leader team president aaron cohen the coyotes set franchise records in ticket sales tv ratings corporate partnerships and philanthropic contributions now i'm gonna give jacob some credit here and start by saying those things can be hard to measure those are a real part of the job and they're not as obvious from the outside as some of the other things that we'll discuss in a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I can't help noting during his entire tenure, the Coyotes were never not in the bottom five in NHL attendance. Now you can say, hey, it was the Coyotes and the team sucked. I wonder whose responsibility that was. But they were definitely up against it. It would not be reasonable to expect them to draw on a level with the New York Rangers. But I'm curious as to what those franchise records were. And, you know, what they're compared against. Because anything can be a record. You know, our record for Tuesdays during a pandemic or something like that. 
there was no magic to these achievements. We reached our goals by rolling up our sleeves and leading in every sense of the word. We made genuine connections in the community, investing time in listening and learning about the challenges of others, and leading our organization with a clear vision for the future. A vision that made people proud to represent our team. Good. On the ice, we spent efficiently and punched above our weight, finally ending an eight-year playoff drought. Oh, hang on a second. This is where we can actually like talk about stuff, because now, now we're getting into the realm of hockey. <laughs> okay, yeah. The rest of the stuff is like, okay, good for you. Corporate stuff. But I got some issues with this. First of all, on our ice, we spent efficiently and punched above our weight. Now, above his in- across his entire tenure, they were fifth last in the league in points. So they were finishing in the basement. Now, they spent as little as anyone. Some of the teams behind them spent notably more. So I guess in that sense, they punched above their weight. But it's a bit like, you were a very bad team for this entire tenure. And as for on the ice we spent efficiently, I got some questions. The five biggest contracts Chick assigned were Oliver Ekman Larson, Clayton Keller, Nick Schmaltz, Jacob Chikrin, and Alex Goligoski. I think the first three of those are generally considered to be bad to significantly bad contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all considered overpaid. Chikrin is good. He's going to be traded. Goligoski kind of didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that counts as efficiently. They, like, they gave a lot of money to not great players, and the hope was maybe we'll get a guy for term who will turn into a star and then he'll be underpaid, but that didn't work. I would say in any of these cases. Maybe Chikrin a little bit, but now they have to trade him. Um, Kenner's surprising, like not maybe not surprisingly, but he he had a really good end to to last season, and it's like kind of continued this season. Yeah, and so he's, so he's like, on the edge. Yeah, like maybe you can say he's worth he's worth the deal. He's still only like twenty three. Yeah, so it's like that's fine. The Ekman Larson one's just a bad contract. Yeah, and then like Nick Schmaltz was he in there? Yes, he was. Yeah, yeah, that that's not great. I don't know what the goal was there, but okay. Um, I also. And I think that I'm on very firm ground in this. Want to take issue with finally ending an eight-year playoff drought. First thing is, the Coyotes ended the playoff drought in the sense that they won in the qualifying round, being the Nashville Predators 3-1 in 2020, and then lost in the next round. They would not have made the playoffs on merit in a normal season. That's the only playoff experience that they've had in a very long time. Secondly... And just on a technical note, they didn't technically do this in John Chica's tenure because he resigned the day before the qualifying round started. So, yes, it was his team, but I feel like you still don't get credit for ending the playoff drought when it's like, yeah, but I left before they did that because I wanted to jump ship to another team. So, uh, the next paragraph goes to, was it hard? Absolutely. I believe you. The team had operated for years in a negative culture and resources disadvantage measured against our peers. But difficulty, true. I, yeah, very true. But difficulty I learned was not something to be railed against or lamented. Navigating it is the mark of a true leader. Man, I know this is how you have to talk when you're doing this sort of thing, but it's a bit like after several paragraphs where we talk about how poor and underfunded we were, uh, then we say difficulty is not something to be railed against. No, but it's going to be complained about as a setup for your own greatness. Um, then we get into some kind of weird Ted talky stuff. Well, 
While it can be tempting to focus solely on results-driven metrics, that can distract us from an important reality. Human beings are not widgets. Nor are they dollars, cryptocurrency, or hourly resources for deployment. I guess. That, that mention of cryptocurrencies feels really out of place. So when we were talking about this with uh, Species uh, on, our, on the site, he said he's almost certain that cryptocurrency is in there for Google purposes. Just so this shows up when the term is applied or like to, uh, to move it up in SEO rankings. It does feel weirdly forced there. Also, I don't know if you infer anything from human beings or not widgets. Like, great. Uh, that should be a given, but okay. Um, he also talks sort of elliptically about him leaving the coyotes. He says, I needed to make a hard decision and this was the right one for myself and for my family. I do respect that. Actually, you got to do you, but he did kind of just turf his own contract to go somewhere else. Hmm. So, yeah. Um, there are a lot of weird things. Um, I think my personal favorite line as we get down the stretch here, is there is also the reality that the next generation of leaders needs to feel compelled by a mission and aligned with the values of their organization. Which, that, what does that even mean? Every day I wake up and I just want to have some possibly not allowed contact with young hockey players <laughs> and understand, you know, what makes them tick more. That, that's, that's my mission. And if my organization doesn't respect that, I can't work there. <laughs> Our values simply aren't aligned, and that's that's a point of departure between us. Um, they want to <laughs> abide by the rules in which we can contact draft prospects, and I want to measure some brains. <laughs> I'm sorry, i got to do some phrenology. That's how I put a cost-efficient product on the ice, despite various financial obstacles, which I'm not railing against. So, <laughs> I... <laughs> I just can't help finding this a little bit funny because his previous organization is furious at him. Like, by all yeah, accounts. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the one thing, the reason I wanted to make sure we talked about the fact that he was suspended before we got into it is because it doesn't come up. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to emphasize that either, to be yes, honest. But it, it's like, it, it does feel like slightly incomplete. Yeah. It's, it's like, didn't want it, it's like when, um, this is, this is a possibly overly specific reference, mm -hmm. but it's like when uh, this couple who you're friends with are just like always arguing, but then we'll post like a loving Facebook message. And it's like, <laughs> come on, like, I've, I've, I have been with you while you talked shit about this person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a bit of a facade going on here. And this letter feels like the epitome of references available upon request because he doesn't have a reference for that job that he's talking about most of the time, because they hate him um, for what they perceive him to have done. The uh, final paragraph kind of just goes all over the place. Uh, in hockey, in the quick service restaurant business, and in life, I have learned over and over again that investing in people is what makes a true leader. Practicing empathy and compassion is a competitive advantage, that I can promise you. We sometimes look at leaders with rose-colored glasses and perceive only the glamorous parts of the job. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, just contemplating the glamour. Uh, the reality is much more complex. Leadership is hard. Making complicated decisions, particularly those that impact others, is hard. And that's okay. 
what a great moral of the story for us all to take away and think about. Sometimes in leadership, you have to make decisions. Um, Even leaders sometimes feel like they're imposters, despite the mountain of evidence that they're actually just sick as hell. <laughs> I wake up every day just wrestling with my own greatness. Um, we've been a bit mean here, but in our defense, this is a silly letter. And it's a, a please hire me letter, which is fine. We've all done it. I do not feel especially like we're punching down, especially since, uh, to judge by the portfolio discussed in this article, John Jacob makes much more in a relatively short time span than I will in my life. He owns 14 more Wendy's <laughs> franchises than Back to Excited does. So I know. He's got, like, yeah. On, on the other hand, I am not racked by my own, I'm not racked by the guilt of my own success. <laughs> so I do have that going for me. That's true. I don't have to worry about feeling like an imposter because, well, I'm just sort of here. But uh, anyway, uh, we should say Mr. Ticka founded Statleads Inc. and JKC Capital. And so I assume Capital is his uh, investment fund, if I had to guess. It would be mm -hmm. John, Catherine, Jacob, which is mm -hmm. him and his spouse. Good for them. Nothing wrong with marrying a rich lady. I want to be clear. I'm not making fun of him for that. I am, however, a little bit making fun of him for this breathtaking Hieronymus Bosch painting of LinkedIn catchphrases <laughs> that he has chosen to put in Sportico, the business of sports. <laughs> the we spent efficiently thing is, is maybe worth discussing because this is a hockey pod. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I guess I can't just make fun of him. Yeah. Um, I, we should, we, I mean, there's this, I, I wonder, they, I bet the Coyotes have like this internal metric of like a point per, per dollar of salary spent or something like that. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, it wouldn't surprise me if they are at the top of that list or near the top. But it's like, teams aren't trying to optimize that. So it's like, yeah, if you're like, if you're measuring based on that and no one else is, then, you know, your actions might just lead you to perform well in that particular task. Exactly. If you're playing right. a game that no one else is playing, it's not a huge achievement when you win. Um, you know, where your competition is the Ottawa Senators to see who can finish still well out of a playoff spot, but with a decent point percentage for the actual salary outlay. You know? Um, I have to, to say, like, I do sympathize with the, the circumstances he was in. It's not yeah, an easy I, I, job, but... They are, they are, it is difficult, and... I think assessment actually is hard because I don't think looking at point mm -hmm. or at a cost per point is, is actually like a smart thing to do for, for exactly that reason. Like teams aren't optimizing with respect to that. So like, and by the nature of hockey with having like a fairly high replacement level, mm -hmm. it might just be the case where like a cap team will just never be able to win that even if, unless they have like a, you know, that lightning year where they won 60 games or something like that. Mm -hmm. But so so yeah, it's it's just like, the, is is that a useful, is that a useful metric to actually judge whether your team is doing well? I don't know, and I don't think so. For basically, for those reasons, like no one's no one's trying to do that. And if you are able to do that, what does it get you? Not much. And arguably, like, arguably the Coyotes would have been better if they had fewer, if they if they if they had fewer points. Mm -hmm. Because they were mostly just in the mushy middle throughout this. They never got a foundational draft pick. 
right? Like, if, if, if you're going to, I guess another problem with, like, cost per point is that it assumes all points are equal. Right. When the reality is, based on where you are on the wind curve, some, some, the marginal value of, of certain points is more, and also the marginal cost it takes to acquire certain points is more, mm -hmm. right? Like, you can get... You can improve your, your points on a raw basis pretty significantly just by going from like replacement level players to only third line players. And you can have a very cheap outlay for that, mm -hmm. right? But you'll never be able to actually get to the end of the win curve where you're making the playoffs or where you're like a, a contending team. Those are the more expensive wins to get. Mm -hmm. So this stat will inherently favor mediocre teams, I feel, who are like better than absolute replacement level and didn't have to spend that much to get there but then would have no real way to actually elevate themselves from that to true playoff team, true contending team. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? And it is difficult to separate, okay, how much of this was the circumstance that he walked into? But I'll tell you, my big takeaway from all of this is John Chaco was very good at managing up. I think you have to be to get hired as GM at age 26, you have to impress the hell out of ownership. And in trying to make his career change the way that he did um, in jumping and also sort of disappearing as that Coyotes draft pick scandal kind of blew up, I think he hit as his own greatest strength as an executive, which is that he really impressed the ownership class. And this article reads to me like, pulling kind of every trick out of the bag to try and impress those people again by talking in sort of C-suite management truisms about the value of people and using a bunch of words and randomly putting in cryptocurrency in there, you know, things like that. And yet this is done so openly, I guess I want to say, so overtly with like no subtlety and no restraint at all. And with a, let's say, uh, flexible view with regard to certain well-known public facts. It's really like, you can see the gears turning this whole time, uh, in this whole article. And mm. it's just kind of staggering to me, you know? Anyway, we talk about bad takes and often it's just like some, Oilers beat writer, but it's rare to see like just an extended real effort to recast history in this way. Yes, and we can still talk about Oilers beat writers because they they lost to the Ottawa Senators, losers. Who do that? Who does that? Um, and I mean, I I really haven't looked up anything about the game, but my plan for Sunday was literally to watch the NFL playoffs and have Oilers Reddit and just scroll through it. I think that's just like a great time for me. When which probably. <laughs> Which probably says why I'm not going to have the John Jacob problem of being, you know, concerned that my greatness is due to luck alone. Well, um, you know, but they're humans. They're not widgets. So, yeah. <laughs> so keep that in mind. Yeah. You know, when we started this podcast, I had, I think, about 15 tabs open. Mm -hmm. And 14 of them were related to stuff that we were going to talk about, like yeah. natural stat trick and hockey viz and uh, all sorts of things open. And then one of them was just the Oilers Nation recap of the game, <laughs> which I was reading for no professional purpose whatsoever. It was just it's funny. it's just fun to it's just fun to see. I mean, it's look, I don't I don't wish ill will on Connor McDavid. He seems like a very pleasant um, robot with a perfectly nice operating system, but. 
like the frustration on his face in like in press conferences when he has to explain yet another loss, but he can't be like, it's because we have two fucking players, Bob. <laughs> That's why we can't win. We have two fucking players. Our goalies suck. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like he, he, I'm sure he wants to say that. If he didn't, I would honestly be very impressed. Oh, with how, how much money would you pay for Connor McDavid to just like have a press conference where he's just like, it's me and Leon and like two other players who are worth a shit and then everyone else here is absolute garbage. <laughs> Can you imagine, like just like a full on Kenny Powers, I've had, you know, three to seven drinks and I'm just ready to rip. And I'm mm. going to tell you some goddamn shit about that time I had to carry fucking Ty Ratty on first line right wing. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, at least at least McDavid can always cheer himself up by going to his murder home. <laughs> that that house is a reflection of his mental state, man. That is what the Edmonton Oilers organization did to that young person. They <laughs> they made him live in a mausoleum of black and white and gray marble. Because <laughs> it's, it's like if Patrick Bateman went to the had a house in Edmonton. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this like. <laughs> kind of getting mean in this podcast but uh that house really feels to me like there was like one specific idea of this is what powerful and adult and authoritative looks like and we're gonna mm. do it in every goddamn room yes and uh wow it was something to behold uh anyway uh i hope everyone enjoyed that as much as i did that was <laughs> a, a fun segment <laughs> for us to do yes and i i think that's basically all we have to talk about we want to let our listeners know um Remember not to be paralyzed by your own greatness. It is, a ta- it is something that affects millions of awesome people who just for some reason feel, despite every inclination, despite everyone telling them how great they are, they just feel that they're not so great. And may- maybe they are great. I mean, everyone seems to think so. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I will say, for the record, it's okay to suffer from imposter syndrome. We yes. don't mean to make light of it. Everyone experiences self-doubt. I'm just saying it is a little funny to do that within three paragraphs of the most insanely inflated self-description I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, imposter syndrome is a very, very oh, yeah. real thing. And like, I'm, I mean, I'm from an academic kind of background and it's like a very common thing in, in academia yeah. in, in particular. Um, and I'm sure in, in kind of various other places as well. The, the, the funny aspect of this is just how, it's like how it's kind of like the Webster's Dictionary defines <laughs> imposter syndrome as a high-performing individual, which I am. <laughs> yeah, like it's... right, like it's it's like the very unsubtle, <laughs> I guess, connotation of this only affects you if you're pretty awesome. Yeah, like yeah, that's the thing. It's like it's it's okay to say like, wow, I am conscious of luck and of my own inadequacies and. Of, of a sense that I'm not measuring up to my own high expectations. And that's a very real thing. And you could actually write an op-ed, even as a very successful person, where you talked about, you know, how that affected you, how you worked to try and gain perspective on all that. But in this context, it reads like an article he read in Psychology Today appended to the front of a cover letter. <laughs> and it just, it comes across as very insincere to me. You it know? does, yes. Anyway. Um... But yeah, that, that's all we have to talk about this week. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at PetroPanPuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFuleman. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.